Everybody good? Thank you guys so much. Um, I'm sure the announcements were made, but we do have a meal afterwards. And uh, I don't know, is John in here? Graham? Where is he? Is he sitting down? He's still outside. No? He's outside. Okay, so John is uh, John has worked really hard yesterday, um, making a lot of good food and grilling a bunch of stuff and everything I've ever had that he's made. Yeah, just wow. So if you don't stay and eat and you go somewhere else, I feel sorry for you already. <laughs> but you're welcome to stay. But if you do need to go, we understand. But it is your loss. And our gain. Just let me know who you are and I'll eat your part of it. Okay? All right. Um, also, ladies, uh, I believe there's going to be a clothing swap in the back. So if you need clothes or know somebody that needs clothes or want to swap clothes, there's a bunch back there. And I took out so much of my closet. So there's a ton of shirts back there that are for, for guys. You can go back and take that if you want, or ladies, if you think that would look good on your husband, then you can just take it home and make him wear it, or whatever, or throw it in the garbage. I don't care. All right. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2. Um, bro, what's up, man? Randy's here. You guys doing good? Yeah? How's it going? Yeah? All right. I'm excited. <laughs> Randy's a good friend of mine. If you don't know him, you need to meet him. All right, so we have been um, talking about Ephesians. We've been going through verse by verse. How many of you guys have uh, been a little bit blessed, maybe a little bit upset? We'll, we'll put that question in one question so that way when the hands go up, we don't know which one was which. So, <laughs> uh, Everybody just raise your hand. Just get it over with. So Paul, Paul is explicit in his direction in Ephesians. If you haven't recognized that by now, it's one of the most masterfully written books in the Bible. It's uh, the culture of the church. I believe also when Paul talks about that he was a wise master builder, I believe we see the framework of what he's trying to establish in the book of Ephesians. Uh, verse by verse, if you look at what he, stand, he, he, he releases to the Ephesian church, it is imperative for the operation of every church. And so we've, we've talked about chapter 1 and chapter 2. Um, if you have, well, we've talked about a few verses in chapter 2. We made it as far as um, 3. <laughs> and we spent a whole sermon on three verses last week. I'm sorry for that. Um, so you're catching us midstream. And I apologize for that, but, well, that's not my fault. So I was here. <laughs> I don't know where you were, but I was here. All right. So we're going to start in verse um, 4. We talked about last week how the importance of how we live our life and the powers of darkness that operate, how they operate through the minds of people and how Paul's trying to get these Ephesians to a place in their life where they understand that how they live directly affects their ability to operate in the spirit realm. What I'm trying to do is build and dismantle at the same time in this message, in this series. What I'm trying to dismantle is the false idea that if you believe the right things, that you can just go out and spout those things off expecting the devil to obey you. That is an untruth. 
the word of God is true, but the word of God must be true in you. You with me? If it's not true in you, by nature, their design, the demon's design is to, is to rebel against you. There's a story, and I'm not going to turn there. You can look it up, where Elijah is uh, with this widow, and he's staying in her apartment. And he performs many miracles for this woman. It's amazing what he did. And then all of a sudden, her, after all these miracles and this presence and the teaching and the man that, that's, that's with her and speaking to her for years, you would think by that kind of interaction with the man of God that the person would know that the Lord is real and that the man of God is true. <laughs> Just try being a pastor for 20 years and you'll realize that's not a reality. Listen. People are not convinced even though they're staring at the reality of God in front of them. Jesus has totally manifested himself at some point in your life with a person standing in front of you. The problem is, is you didn't like the person or the message, so you discounted it as being him. If you think God doesn't use people to talk to you, then why are you out there talking to people about him? Okay, so this woman has all this experience with prophetic reality for years, and then her boy dies. And then she says to Elijah in so many words, my boy's dead, go fix the problem. He takes him upstairs and lays himself over top of this boy and he gets up from the dead. Amazing story. But you know what the amazing part of the story is? is she said to him this. She said, now I know that the word of God in your mouth is truth. In other words, the word of God in some people's mouths is not truth. If you disagree with that, then why did the devil quote the scripture to Jesus? See, what we think is, is that I'm just going to quote the word. The problem with that is, is that the word has to have its work in you before its release can be happening in somebody else. There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an authority to growth. There's a, there's a responsibility to the things that we've been given. There's a responsibility to revelation. And it's a responsibility to live well, not so that we can boast in our morality, but so that someone else can have a pure vessel in which the word of God flows through. The morality that God requires of us is not for you. It's for everybody else. Does this make sense? It's interesting that the word of God in some people's mouths is more true than others. So that's what I'm trying to dismantle. What I'm trying to build is the reality that God has a plan for you to be the thing that you're speaking and preaching. Does this make sense? Okay, this is what Paul's doing in Ephesians. All right, so he begins, um, Paul, in verse, in verse 4, uh, first three verses, you have to go back and listen to the, to the last part. But in verse 4, Paul begins to outline the power of mercy and love. And I think if the church could get this, then she would have a lot less struggle in many areas of her life. 
Do you realize the power of mercy and love brought you to where you're at right now? Away from where you were. It wasn't because you lost an argument with God that you got saved. So you need to write that down. Because you're trying to convince people that don't want to be convinced. You didn't lose an argument and then come to Jesus. That's not how it works. It was the love and mercy of God that drew you to his heart. So when you're trying to sway other people, what you do is you do it to them the same way it was done to you. Through love and mercy, you win the souls of men. And through that love and mercy, you disempower the powers and principalities that have seated themselves in their brains. Why? Because the principality in the mind of a man cannot fathom why love and mercy is being given whenever persecution is being handed out. It disrupts the cycle of the demon. The essence of Ephesians is this. Paul is trying to get an entire church to understand that there's a certain way that you must live before you get to the warfare reality that completely dominates Ephesians' teachings. Most people that don't know their word very well, who have been in church in any length of time, when you mention Ephesians chapter 6, blows out of their mind. That's what comes out of their mouth because that's what they've been taught. There's this indoctrination to this seduction of deliverance and, and demons and fighting battles and principalities. and that make, Because people want to feel powerful because they often feel very weak. The problem with that is they haven't renewed their mind to understand that their weakness is their greatest capacity of strength. <laughs> so they're trying to offset what they really are by trying to be what they actually are a different way. And the enemy loves that, that just that struggle and fight. And oh, he loves it. He loves when you go to your prayer closet and spend an hour screaming at him. Because he just took all your time away from Abba. Put all the focus on him and the war and what's wrong and what he's doing. And oh, you might as well just worship his power at that point. And you are, in that moment, walking in a deceptive reality, thinking you're taking control over those realities whenever they've already been completed in Christ. And you just have to use wisdom to know how to battle a certain situation to get to a point where you can overthrow that thing in time. Just because it doesn't happen when you want doesn't mean that you're not on the course to the trajectory of victory God's planned for you. The power of love and mercy. He says... God was merciful when you were dead in your sin. Because he loved us so much, he made us alive in Christ, and God's wonderful kindness is what saved you. That is the power that pulls people out of demonic thinking. You with me? You can see it in marriage. Two people start to fight. You don't win the argument because you prove your point. You may... You may push them into a corner where they can no longer argue because your facts are better than theirs, but you lost the argument because <laughs> you lost the person. Jesus did not come to argue with you. He came to gain your heart through love and mercy. Why? Because you didn't deserve it. And when that reality hits you, it breaks you. There's no greater capacity to show love and mercy in a context where someone doesn't deserve it. 
In fact, that's the greatest context in which you should show it. Because that's where they realize they're not worth it. Because you're treating them better than they're treating you. And it hijacks their mind. Right? It was the love and mercy that he showed us that brought us to him. So Paul, in in the first few verses, talks about how their sin took them away from God and put them underneath the power of the principality. And Paul reminds them of their past. But before he reminds them of their past, he reminded them in chapter 1 of their eternal future. And then he begins to say that this power and this love and this mercy is what brought you out of that demonic darkness and sat you with Christ. And the church undermines the power of love and mercy simply because it costs her more than what she wants to give contextually in a situation. We begin to look at who's doing us wrong and then validate whether they deserve the love and mercy based upon their performance. Praise God he doesn't do that to us. And yet we say, I want to be like Jesus. But do we really? Because the opportunities that he gives us to be like him are extremely uncomfortable for the Adamic nature. Why? So the Adamic nature can be exposed and removed. Not exposed and reign. Do you see how doing these things pulls away the power and the authority of the principality operating in the minds of people? See, spiritual warfare is not actually very, it's not complicated. It's really not. It's very simple. You manifest the reality and the nature of Jesus and the love of God, and it completely breaks the authority of years of stronghold thinking in people's minds and hearts. Within the love of God is the ability to war like God. He won you, didn't he? And he won you through love. So even when we were dead in sin, the love of God was far more powerful than having a work in us when we weren't conscious of it. Do you realize that? That the love of God was working for you while you were working against it. See, we, we think that God wasn't really involved in our life except from the fact he was chasing us down or whatever it was when we were in sin. But no, the love of God, the blood of Jesus was having a work inside of you, a war for you before you were even conscious of the reality of the war he was bringing you into. And that war was won by the love and blood of God. There was something that God was fighting for in you before you even worth, before you understood that you were worth fighting for before you even believed you were worth fighting for, because many Christians today don't even believe they're worth fighting for right now, because they hurl insults at God for what he didn't do. They hurl insults at God for what they had to go through, but what they had to go through was contextual to showing them how much he loved them. Offense always comes when we don't get our way either from somebody else or from God himself. And offense has its roots in the reality that God is not enough for us. Show me someone offended and I'll show you somebody who's not fully satisfied with Jesus because they didn't get what they wanted. That's the only reason offense has a way of, of 
rooting itself in our life. Because if Jesus was enough, nothing would offend you. Nothing would offend you because you realize I have everything I need. If something else is taken away from me, it's just okay. Death is going to take it away anyway. If I lose it early, then it must be the will of of God. Such trust. Knowing that we operate in an ultimate reality, that we possess all things. Training our mind day in, day out to understand no matter what we lose, it's always something that's going to be taken away anyway. And what we can't lose is what we always had in the first place. This is why we went through sonship and mind renewal and wisdom teaching. Why? To get to this point, you can't have this understanding of Ephesians without understanding who God is, what he did, the covenant he made with you, the necessity to renew your mind, the wisdom teachings, these issues that, that, that we've been building upon, and now this is the release of the practicality of the gospel into the nations through us. Does this make sense? So, so, so love was the very reason we started And it's also the same thing that holds us in the dark spaces in between. (laughs) But somebody who wants something else from God will never be satisfied with God himself. There's a lot of Christian people that want something, they want Jesus plus something else. Your life's never going to make sense until it's just Jesus. Everybody in here has a hope, some sort of dream. However, God will make you at some point, if you do it correctly, face off with the reality of what if I never give that to you? Am I still enough? And you have to honestly answer that question, but he honestly knows the answer already. Every hardship you're going through, every trial, every question, every desire, everything. If you follow Jesus correctly, you'll come to a place where he says, am I enough for you? You remember when Jesus was talking to the disciples right before he left, and he was talking about John, how good John was going to have it, quote, unquote. <laughs> and then Peter's was like, what about him? And What about me? And he's like, you follow me. Am I enough for you, Peter? See, you can't compare your God's faithfulness in the context of the person sitting next to you. Because in one person, he heals, and the next person, he doesn't. Why? I have no idea. But he does. And you're not the judge. I know you think you are. But we always do a very poor job of it. We release ourselves and bind everybody else. No amens on that one. Okay, we'll move on. (laughs) Verse 6. God raised us from death to life with Christ Jesus and gave us a place beside Christ in heaven. See, we just got done talking about what happened in verses 1 through 3 of, the, of our sin, and it dominated us underneath the powers of darkness. And now Paul begins to take this love and mercy issue to a step farther. He says, not only did it have a work in you in the earth, but it had a work in you in a place you don't even actually exist in yet, though you do exist in it. 
it placed you in a place that you can never be moved from. You are now positioned in the heavenly places in Christ. Colossians 3 says your life is hidden with Christ in God, which means there's a part of you that you don't even recognize the reality of until you get there. There's a work that God did in you that you're not even conscious of until you see its full manifested reality in that reality, not this one. Does this make sense to you? That there's a part of our whole nature and walk that we're not even conscious of and we're trying to weigh the balances of God and his fairness and justice and all these types of things. We're only dealing with one little sliver of the pie and the rest of it's reserved for an age that is to come. How do you know that? Because he says it here in the next few verses. See, before we move on, the contrast is, is that at one time we sat in darkness. But now we sit and we're seated in light. You with me? Let, me? let me say it this way. You see that word sit? And you see that word made? <laughs> Much of spiritual warfare is making you sit. Learning to sit in what God has already defeated. See, a seated king is a king that's not at war. Amen. And where are we seated? With him. Do you know there's points in wrestling? And it says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Do you realize that Jesus squared off with the enemy? Put one point on the board for us and none for hell. And you know what all we have to do now in that wrestling match? All we have to do, we don't have to gain any more points. You know what we have to do now? Hold what we have. Sit. Ephesians 6 says, stand. Jesus says, hold the ground I've given you. Why? Because we have enough points on the board. We're already ahead. The enemy is just trying to get us to quit so that we lose as an individual, even though the corporate will win as a whole. So the, the corporate church is going to win. She's going to win. Whether you're a part of that or not depends on who you believe. Jesus' true church is going to win. And she's the one that stays and stands and holds the line when everybody else quits. Made us. How many of you sit well in here? No amens on that one either. <laughs> There's a reason why he has to make us. We're going to get to verses 8 and 9 here. Why 8 and 9? Why are we saved by grace through faith? We just take that as a cheap little iconic, you know, salvific reality. No, because God will not honor our work or our warfare. He only honors his. And he expects us to stand in what he did. You realize it takes more faith for you to stand in what God did than it does for you to walk in what you're trying to do for him? 
if he's coming back looking for faith, why do you think you have to fight so hard in what he's already, he's already won? The only reason that the battle seems hard is because you're not convinced of the ultimate victory in reality. You're not convinced of it. You, you, you believe the lie of, of the devil. You think the devil actually has circumstantial power. And he gets you to doubt him by what you see and by what you feel. Whenever what you see and what you feel will pass away. Well, I've got pain in my body. You'll be cured one day. Trust me. Y'all better be dancing and shouting at my funeral because I'm going to be happy. I ain't going to be here. <laughs> I ain't going to have back pain anymore. It's just I'll be free. It's, it's my reality. I'll step into my ultimate reality. This is a temporary one where I get to actually use the small time frame I have to trust a God who seems like he's not working on my behalf, but I know he is because I know who he is as a nature. I know his nature. He cannot fail me. Why? Because I'm already with him. What I have to go through until I get there, that's just, that's just like going to work. You just got to get through the day. You with me? All right. So any area of my life where I'm not seated is a place where I'm ineffective in warfare. I'm going to let that hang. Any area of, of, of your life, of my life, where we're not operating in a seated reality is a place where you're going to be ineffective in your fight. I'm telling you, the demon thrives on human energy. I could tell you stories of fighting demons, principalities, devils. I mean, in literal, tangible senses, like physical forms of reality. And the more you get excited and try to quote your scriptures, the stronger they get. They feed on human energy. That's why whenever you get in someone's face after they get in your face, it doesn't make a situation more calm. See, demons are intimidated by sons who are at rest because they have nothing to prove. They have nothing to prove. They stand. And you don't know what's going on in the mind of a son who stands. And the devil doesn't know what's going on in that head. He just sees you staring him down, not moved, and not able to be manipulated by the circumstances he's throwing at you. In fact... The more the circumstance he throws at you, the more that comes out of your mouth is praise unto Father. Why? Because you know that the word of God is true in you. Give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. What's the enemy going to do with that? Eventually, you know what he's going to do? Trust me, I've seen this happen in my life. He stops attacking you because every time he does, Every time he does, all it does is usher forth more praise unto Father. And so you know who he starts attacking? Those you love. Because that's the way he hurts you. Because he feels like if he can't get to you anymore, he'll get to the ones you love. And he'll try to mess with them. That's what he did with Peter and Jesus, isn't that right? Can't get to Jesus. I got no place in him, so I'll get to Peter whom Jesus loves. 
I really hate the enemy. It's one thing y'all are going to have to fight me on, and that's the first place position of punching him square in the throat <laughs> when it's all over with. So I try to punch him as much as I can in the influence in your minds while I'm here. See, doubt is declared war on the security of the love of God. Our unbelief is a warfare raging against the surety of the love of Christ. Do you have any Christians I've met over my, over my season of life that actually they've been involved in Christianity for a long time, but when it really comes down, the push comes to shove, they don't really believe God loves them? So many. Because they view their sin more than they view anything else. They view themselves through their screw-ups and their failures instead of how God sees them, and they're not convinced that he loves them because their reality is not God's reality. Verse 7, God did this. Listen to this. He did all of this. This is so good. This is so awesome. So that. There's a so that in there. The ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. In other words, God did all of this eternally past in your life, working for you and with you when you were working against him, securing you by his love, bringing you into the tangible reality of Christ, seating you above all principality and power and doctors, giving you purpose and manifest reality of God so that one day he could take you, open you up, and people look at the work of God inside of your life, and they realize how great a work it was and how impossible a work it was, and it ushers forth praise of God, world without end, from one soul when God made Manifest his full work in their life. Amen. And there's going to be billions of us. And when God begins to show forth everything he did that the, in the ages to come, there's something God's doing now in our lives that will not ultimately be revealed until we get there. And when we get there, it will reveal to us the exceeding riches of his grace and show us finally how kind he was toward us in his son. That the salvation that you claim, you and I don't even have a conscious awareness of the depth that it touches in eternal reality yet. We just look at our salvation as I was saved from something instead of into someone and how big he really is. The salvation context of your life is not rooted in what you were, but who he is in you. The kindness of God toward us in Christ and then we are in him. Does that make sense? I'm so tired of the church contextualizing everything about sin and sin and sin and chaos and destruction and what you were and where you were. And I was saved from sin. No, you were saved to be placed in someone. And that man blows all of our comprehensive theological studies. And if he shows up in a room, everything we think we've ever learned from him just falls off of us. And we find ourselves a puddle laying as though we were dead in front of him. I mean, you have conscious, apostolic strength and authority in John the Revelator. And he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. This is a man 60 years in gospel reality, and he sees Jesus in a way he never saw him before, and he's a mess. Because he saw who he was saved into. He saw the reality of himself in this man. 
and it laid him at his feet. And the first thing Jesus does, so good, God. He's so good. The first thing my God does as he lifts John up and says, you deserve to be up here. Stand up. I'm going to break at that moment. I will break. Because I'm like, no, I need to be down here. And he says, I saved you to stand with me, sit with me, and be like me. And you and I don't deserve that reality. Which is what breaks our hearts and makes us come in low and he raises us up high. This is salvation. To be saved into something. What he has done for us was not for this age alone. See, there's certain parts of our reality and our salvation that cannot be revealed while we're here. They're reserved for a greater time and a greater place. It says the riches of God. Where is that? It's inside of us. And we haven't even unpacked a fraction of our inheritance in Christ. We're still trying to use some convincing theology to make the lie of the enemy go away. How much of your week is just trying to fight the headspace that you haven't renewed? Why don't you just get that renewed, get it over with, and then you don't have to fight those battles anymore and you end up standing more than you end up fighting? See, if you concrete certain realities in your brain, which is why we did the mind renewal series before we got here, if you concrete certain realities in your brain, you end up fighting a whole lot less. Because then it doesn't matter what man does or what beast does or what demons do. You look at that and go, tell me how this affects the overall battle plan of me winning this entire war. It doesn't. Therefore, you move. And I will stand here until you move. And if it takes a year, it takes a year. And if it takes 10 years, it takes 10 years. You know what? And if it takes my entire life and you still don't move, I'm going to train up a generation behind me to be a scourge to you after I leave. Because we are not in this for ourselves. Verse 8. It's grace that saves you through faith, not of yourselves. See, God doesn't need you. He wants you. And there's a big difference. He doesn't need you to fight for him. He needs you to stand with him in what he's already fought for. Those of you who know chapter 6, you know that he says the word stand like seven times in just a few verses. <laughs> and he goes through all this armor and everybody, you know, I love, I love watching these people get caught up in this whole armor of God thing. Like, you know, oh, get ready. And he's like, well, when you get dressed, and then finally what? And I just sit there. <laughs> well, no, I, no, yeah, he just, I just want you to look like me. That, that was the whole point. See, they call it the armor of God because it's not your armor. It's his. And when you put it on, who do you look like? Does that mean he needs you to go fight like him? No, he already, he said it is. I mean, I don't know what you say to that. People are always like, oh, God's not doing anything in my life. I mean, he did everything. You just don't believe it. Why do I have all these problems? Because you're fighting a liar, and he's really good at his job, and you need to be good at yours on standing. I mean, he's had 
however many years to practice on new generations, you think you're the first one that he's had to practice on? He's got his, it's a thin playbook, but it's really well written. It says you've been delivered by grace through trusting. Listen, if that's how you got saved, then how are you supposed to fight? If grace brought you into this reality, then how are you supposed to fight once you're in this reality? By grace. What is grace? It's the divine influence of God on our hearts. So powerfully that a result happens in our life. And when we're fighting or wrestling with other people, you know what we need? We need grace in their life. Why? Because we need divine influence in their heart with the result being seen in their life. That's why so many times the apostolic authorities in the Bible, especially Paul, he opens his letters, grace and peace be to you. Why? You think he's just chiming out biblical language? No, he actually believes he has the authority to release it. Why? Because the word of God is true in his mouth. What he believes is what he owns. So when he says grace and peace, he releases grace and peace. It's not a hopeful situation like us. We're like, well, I pray that maybe, you get, maybe you'll get grace and peace. <laughs> no, he's like, no, I'm here. You'll get grace and peace. Re receive it. See, so he releases something. Now, whether people receive it or not depends upon their ability to, to, to apprehend what, what's been given. Remember the time when he was in Ephesus and he was preaching? And he perceives that the man had faith to be healed. The healing was flowing the entire time for everybody. But one person in the room was like, yeah, this is mine. And he's like, oh, this dude's got it, man. Get up, get up. And if you're honest, you know, when you're preaching to a group of people, many hear, but not many get up. What I want for all of you is to get up. But that is your choice. See, the entrance fee to this life was what? Trust. The entrance fee to Christianity was trust. What's it going to be when you're in the biggest battle of your life? Same thing. And if God can take a wretch like you and transform him, you to where you are now today, then what can he do with the situation that you're involved in? See, even if I lose a battle, I would rather lose in faith than win in, in unbelief. Because unbelief gets me nothing. Faith is an eternal reward I can, I can offer to God. See, faith goes with me, unbelief doesn't. The circumstance that I may win in unbelief stays here and it doesn't go any farther than that. I get no eternal reward for that. I selfishly consume it in that moment and it's gone. It's, it's just, it's gone. But to stand in faith on even something I don't receive is something I can offer him. And trust me, when you meet the giver of all givers, you're going to want to give because you're in the presence of a giver and it's going to draw out of you something that he put inside of you. And if you have nothing to give, you're going to be very disappointed in yourself. Oh, I won't be disappointed when I'm there. How come it says that God's going to wipe away a lot of tears at that moment? Because regret will be absolutely massive in that moment. We will realize what we traded for the God that stands in front of us. And everything we traded is no longer here. It's vaporized. It doesn't even exist. You want something in your hands. You want gold. Amen? All right.
So knowing this, the war is already won. The obedience is now required by faith. We obey by faith, right? We're saved by faith. We're supposed to walk by faith. Oh, man. How many of you guys realize when you get faced with a situation and it looks like it's not going to go your way, how many of you guys realize, man, I'm not really standing, I'm not, I'm not trusting right now? I mean, you, you don't always get what you want, but you have to hear the Lord. And those of you who have been with us longer than three years, we just celebrated a huge victory in this church. After a little bit of trial and issue and loss and you know, we've been praying for Alan Lishiba's baby for a long time. And they had a miscarriage in between. But I know what God said. So you've got to pray until you hear the Lord. But once you hear the Lord, you don't have to pray anymore. See, I, I, I was, it was a moment in time where God had me on my face, and I was gut-wrenching, sobbing, crying, feeling like I was giving birth myself in prayer. And something broke, and I felt it. And I was like, oh, it's done. It's done. And I don't care what happened after that. Right after that, she had a miscarriage. And I was like, I don't care. I mean, I'm not, I didn't care, but I'm just like, no, I know what God said. I know this is hard. We're going to get through this. I'll walk with this through you. But I know what God said, and I'm not going to be moved what I just saw. I'm not going to be moved by what I just saw. I heard the Lord. I'm not going to blame him. And then the other night, everybody's like, oh, is it, uh, it going to be a problem? Is it I was like, no, I know what God said, guys. Stop getting so emotional. Let's get emotional after she's born so we can get happy emotional. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> See, Jesus is king. It takes time to fight some battles. And in that two and a half years, there's lots of opportunity to doubt. It may take 10 for some battles or 15. Guys, I've been fighting some that have taken 20 years. And I have had so many chances to doubt God. Some I did, some I didn't. Where I did, I repented. And everywhere where he exposed my unbelief, I came to him and I said, replace it with faith. See, this whole thing is by trust. Did God really say? <laughs> is the Lord really winning in this situation? Is God really with you? I mean, you can have all these people that have had all these spiritual experiences with God all their whole life, and then some major calamity happens, and they're just shaking their fist at God, going, God, are you really with me or not? He's like, come on. And that's what they call tempting the Lord, right? That was Deuteronomy, what, six? And all these people who were following Jesus saw the clouds, saw the fire, saw the water, saw them destroy the, the Egyptians, saw the water, saw the rock, saw the manna, all these miracles. And then they finally come to a place where they're thirsty and there's no water. Are you really with us or not? But that's what we do. God saved us and set us free and delivered us and kept us out of prison and kept us out of this and kept us out of that. But the next calamity that comes, boy, that voice of the devil that's so familiar to us, is God really with me or not? <laughs> His name's Emmanuel, and that name don't change. 
one of my most favorite names of God outside of Abba. Emmanuel. I love it. He's with me. <laughs> oh, he's with me. See, he sets a table in the presence of my enemies. What you want is him for to remove your enemies so you can eat. No, he wants you to eat in the presence of them so he can show you off to the powers of darkness. That's what he wants. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship. One translation says, God planned for us to do good things and to live as he always has intended for us to live. That's why he sent Christ to make us what we are. We are his workmanship. You are God's workmanship. God doesn't make junk. Now, you've created some things in your life that he wants to knock off of you, which is what my mom was talking about earlier with judging those things to get him off you. <laughs> because he's mad at those things, not at you. He's mad at the things that you've allowed yourself to become. Because that's not how he made you. You are his workmanship, created in Christ for what? Good works, which, should be, which God prepared before that we should walk in them. Do you understand what he's saying here? Is that God prepared a life before you ever got to the life you're in. And people think good works, you know, that's almost like a, a religious issue. Like, well, I've got to do a bunch of good works. No. Why does Paul say you were created for good works? It's very simple. Because when you work under the authority of what God intended for you to live in, you are undermining the powers of darkness that are attempting for you to live a different way. In other words, it's like this. It's like God having the release of his life into his children so radically, and they're so free and so full of liberty and so full of joy and peace, living the way God intended for them to live right in the presence of the principality that's trying to destroy their life. In other words, what they're doing and how they're living is a complete defiance to the powers that are trying to dominate their life and showing those powers, you have no place over me. When we live the way God wants us to live, it literally is God showing off to the principality, I beat you. Amen. And my work is shown forth in my children. They're literally walking through life with you all around them and they're unconscious of your reality and they're conscious of mine. See, there's something about living in good works that disrupts the powers of darkness. That's why the enemy has perverted that good works issue to be a religious issue, to get people from living that way, because now we're so afraid to do anything because we don't want to do it out of the spirit of religion. Oh, it's such a mind-binding devil. See, God prepared a life that you should walk in before you ever got to the life you're in. He's working in you. He's building something in you. You understand what I'm saying? So the plan of God is to live, for the church is to live as God intended. After the order of Christ. What does Jesus say that the works of God are? Really simple. To believe on the one the Father sent. <laughs> to believe him. Why is that so powerful? Like, well, is that, that's it? That's just believe. Let's trust me. The believing on him when the demon is right in your face is work enough. When we live as we're created to, we're showing the powers that rage against the kingdom of God, that we're operating under the rule and the plan of God and not the warfare of the enemy. To have whole families, whole communities, 
proves to the powers of this age that we are no longer under their authority and they have no influence in our day-to-day lives. What Paul's trying to say here in this issue is that when we live the way Christ wants us to live in good works, it's going to touch our relationships, it's going to touch our marriages, it's going to touch our jobs and our careers, and the enemy's going to find no place in any area of our life, which means when he's not welcome, the kingdom of God is because you're there. And the blessing of God can come even over heathen people just because you're present. That you carry with you something that disrupts chaos. It's called the Prince of Peace. And it's not because you quote it to be so. It's because you've become that reality and you've believed that reality and you stand on that reality. How do I know that's where he's going? Because that's what chapter 3 and 4 is about. Paul's prophetic understanding of the church gets into deep relationship issues, which he addresses before he addresses principalities and powers of darkness. He alludes at it in chapters 1 and 2, but he gets to the meat and the potatoes of spiritual warfare after he touches the human relationships we're involved with. In other words, if you treat people like garbage, you will be dominated by a principality. If you divide the church of Jesus with your little opinions and your little microcultures that you split off into, well, I just disagree with that. Congratulations. You are now working for the other team. No amens. Have you read the Bible? Have you read the dangers of your opinions? Have you understood the fact that they says, Paul, Paul is telling Titus, he says, he tells them, I mentioned this last week, mark those that cause division among you and remove them. Why? Because it's one thing to work with somebody's sin and try to get them out of it and help them, but it's a totally different thing for have, uh, them having bringing division into the body of Christ. Why? Because we are his workmanship, and the devil loves to divide and break apart what God is building. And if he can do it through the smallest of your opinion and treating somebody the way you shouldn't be treated because you disagree with them theologically, you know what usually that the case is? Nine times out of ten, not, not always, but nine times out of ten, the disagreements that you have with someone in the body is because you're immature, and you're looking at the entire picture through the lens of your specific gift, and that makes you blind to the reality of the other gifts around you. I've seen so many young people get so fired for God, usually around years 5 through 8 to 10, and they get so radicalized in their gospel. (laughs) And they see only through their lens and how they perceive things and how they think things should be done. And they've got some, some history with God, yes. But they don't understand the beauty of the body because they're selfish and they're immature. And they will use their being right to usurp themselves over someone else and demand that everybody does it their way, thus bringing division. And the devil loves those kind of people. Because they are literally judging everything by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the principality owns that tree. Well, I don't think that was right. (laughs) God let it happen, though. You want to take it up with him? There's lots of things that aren't right. But you know what I found? Is the stuff that ain't right gives me the greatest opportunity to show what is. Jesus. 
And the devil knows this, and so he takes immature Christians and he lets them see the world through their unique lens of their gift, and he blinds them to everything else. I don't know if we'll get to it, but at some point, someday, and I keep saying this, I'd love to do a teaching on the gifts. Because <laughs> there's certain ones that just butt heads constantly. This is why Jesus said, love one another. You guys know that prophets and pastors don't normally get along? You figured that out yet? That's why there's not very many prophets in the church, because pastors run them off. But in the order of the gifts, the prophet's over the pastor. But then you get dangerous because then you get renegade prophets who don't have an apostolic authority they'll submit to because they're used to being number one. But really they're number two, which is actually an inverted order. <laughs> the apostle's at the bottom, <laughs> which is the lowest place, and then the prophet, and then it goes on up. But when each person begins to try to drive the situation to a point of reality that based upon what they see, that all they do is bring division and stop the good works that God has for the people of the Lord. With me? Okay, that's my tangent. All right. The next verse, in verse 11, Paul makes a transition. He begins to talk about the oneness in Christ. Why? Because he's, he's, he's segueing into the relationships we have with each other by showing us that we're no longer isolated by ourselves, that we're brought into something bigger than us, we're brought into a culture bigger than us, a plan bigger than us, and a people bigger than us. And he begins to remove that individuality that causes so much division, and he begins to say, hey, you need to understand you're part of something bigger than just your opinion. Amen. Don't forget that you Gentiles, in fact, you used to be called the uncircumcised by those who take pride in being circumcised. You were once called uncircumcision. Next verse. You were on the outside. At that time, you were without Christ. You were alone. You lived under your own opinion, and your own opinion brought you to the place where you needed Christ. Your opinion ruined you. It brought you to a place of ultimate reality that you, you hated. Being aliens, you were separated from the commonwealth or the inheritance of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of God and the covenants of promise. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. See, if we don't war from a place of hope, then we're not going to war from a place of true identity. Because of who we are and what God brought us into automatically results in hope. When I preach sonship, the first thing I usually see in people is hope. They just... There's a, there's a hope that comes back because we have to war from the right place. But we are not separated any longer. You with me? Paul is using the Jew-Gentile distinction to talk about a unity that's supposed to happen in the body. Okay? The fact that we were once rejected lends to our acceptance. See, our connection to this commonwealth is absolutely important. Why? Because now all of a sudden our life is not a random string of events. We're now connected to people like Abraham, David, Moses, Elijah. You are brought into, grafted into that tree, which means your story is directly connected to their life. And you are that, that people in the end of Hebrews 11 that says they, these people, all the heroes of the faith, without us, are not made perfect. In other words, your... The greatness of their life hinges upon you doing your part because now you're one. 
See, well, while you're down here questioning whether your life is worth anything, they're up there going, if you don't get this, what we did is in vain. Because you're brought into something bigger than you, something more important than you, something that's been going on since Adam and before that even. That God had a plan to unify his people in Christ. Why? Because it takes a unified people to disrupt principalities. The principality has its greatest work in opinions and division. Since this church has started, I don't know how many years ago now, the constant plan has always been, the constant attack, the constant thing that we've always had to battle was this, division. Bobby's been here a long time. How many people have you seen come and go? Offended, leave. Division. You know, I, I, I remember a sermon a guy preached a long time ago called Nobody Quits Alone. He talks about the biblical reality that Peter's like, I'm done. You know, I'm going fishing. This is after the resurrection. This is after all this stuff. He's like, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to, I'm going back to going fishing. I'm going to go back to work my job. I'm done with this whole gospel stuff. And everybody else is like, yeah, we'll go with you. And he takes them all with him. Yeah. Be careful when you quit. Because you always take somebody with you. Never in the history of this church has somebody ever quit alone. They've always taken people with them. And even if they didn't intentionally do it, several others will follow just because somebody else did. It's just the way it works. It's, it's a demonic principality. I, I, I won't say this about this church or anything else, but I will say this a biblical principle. I hope we get there one day, and even if we get there, I don't even know if we know we are there or not, but even First John says this, we know that these people were antichrist because they left us and they didn't return. That's crazy. I'm not saying that for here, okay? Just letting you know. I'm not saying that's a reality, but I'm saying that in the biblical reality, John identified certain people leaving the body of Christ as the spirit of Antichrist because it was causing division. There's nothing more anti-Jesus than the devil. And there's only one way that he can cause the greatest harm to God is by division. Why? Because a divided house, what? And God has to abide by his own rules. You with me? Oh, man, I'll hurry in. Verse 13, you were far from God, but Christ offered his life's blood and sacrifice and brought you near. Now you were once far off, right? He brought you in to the shedding of his blood. The blood of Christ brought you into the reality. It holds you in the reality, and it's the reality you war by. Why does the demon hate the blood of Christ? Why does the demon hate blood songs? Why does the principality hate the blood of Jesus? Because the blood of Jesus is the power of the life source of God that's placed inside of you. It's the DNA by which you're born again, and it's the DNA by which you war. When we operate in the blood of Jesus, which is the life of Christ... We're operating under the nearness of God in that situation. We're releasing God into that reality, which causes everything that's against God in that reality to have to bow. We house the blood of Christ inside of us. But the demon's trying to convince us to house unbelief and doubt. 
Okay? Verse 14. Christ has made peace. He's made both one and broken down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. In other words, he's made peace in the body of Christ. He's made peace with one another. There should be no more division in the body of Christ. There should be one body. One body. A diversity of gifts, but one body. One, I should celebrate your diversity of gift. I shouldn't celebrate your opinion that brings division. Does this make sense? Okay. One, why? Because without unity, we lose the war. Period. So Paul brings our position into Israel, but also the one new man of the headship of Jesus. This is the beginning of his discourse on the body and the need for unity in the body of Christ. Within the unity of the body is the power to overthrow the principality. Do you realize one pastor can't do that? One pastor can't fight a principality. It, it, takes, it takes a whole body. It takes every gift operating. It, it, it's, it's like, you know, you got these guys over here throwing grenades and this guy over here running a 50 cal and this guy over here running the air support and this guy over here. It takes an, a full assault of every gift in the body of Christ. But if one person's disconnected because of an offense, because of a disagreement, because of a, an opinion or a rebellion or a disappointment, that part of the body is missing and therefore the warfare is less effective. You know, the first thing that happens whenever you get offended, you start isolating. Anybody that's find themselves away from church for any length of time, congratulations, you now know what it's like to believe the lie. Because that's exactly what happens. You swallow the lie and it had its place in you by separating you from the power of the body. See, the cross was the end of division. He made peace through his cross. The cross is supposed to be the end of division. So if division is still present in the body, what you see is the body rebelling against the cross. Oh, I love the cross of Christ. I love Jesus. No, if you're causing division, then no, you don't. You love your opinion more than you love Jesus. Because Jesus' body is not divided. There's a reason why it wasn't broken on that cross. You realize that? The reason why there wasn't a bone broken on him, it was a prophetic reality. Because we aren't supposed to be divided from one another. Every joint supplies. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. Yes? So you understand Paul's not just writing just randomized scripture for you to read in individuality so you can maybe take some sort of, ooh, about whatever this might be. Is there a process to this? Are you seeing that, guys? Christ came and preached to you Gentiles who were far from God, peace to the Jews who were near God. And because of Christ, all of us can come to the Father by the same Spirit. You Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're citizens and everyone else who belongs to the family of God. That was verse 17, 19. You're now part of the family and the citizenry of heaven, which means you live by the rules of the house. You live by the rules of a different kingdom. And you are now engaged in the war that God's engaged with in himself. Not with each other, but with things out there. And when you encounter a member of the body who's bringing division, whew, we'll see how uh, spiritual you really are, because that's a war. 
And you got to go in low and smart. Because once they're already offended, it's like taking a city wall. It takes wisdom to do it. Go read Proverbs. Verse 18, 19, right? You with me? So the principality rules by the power of the tree of knowledge. The kingdom of God rules through the cross and the tree of life, which brings unity amongst God's people. Paul's trying to bring the Gentiles into something they are not familiar with. Can you recognize that? They're not familiar with Jewish laws and customs and promises, but they're brought, they're brought right into it. They have a different opinion on the reality. They don't see things from the scripture standpoint that the Jew does. You get this. Paul's talking about two different groups of people that are not going to see the same things when they're brought together. You get this? I, I really hope you do. But when one person starts demanding that they only see it this way, it causes division. Right? This is why you put Jews and Gentiles in the same rooms, and some of them were like, oh, you got to be circumcised. And they're like, no, I don't. Because that's how the devil divides. For one, yeah, they, they need to follow their rules. For the other, <laughs> we're wild olives. We, we eat pork and, and all kinds of crazy stuff. Right? Yeah. I love it when Gentiles start trying to be Jews. Like, what are you doing? Oh, man. All right. <clears throat> Christ is the one who holds the building together and makes it grow into a temple of the Lord. Verse 21. Christ is the one who holds the body together. He makes it grow into a temple of God. See, that's what we are. We're supposed to be the temple of the Lord in totality, not individuality. We make the temple of God. Each stone, each building, each block makes the temple of the Lord. You with me? You follow what I'm saying? Because it takes a whole house to bring forth a whole war, right? Verse 22, you are part of that building that Christ has built and a place for God to live by his spirit. What's, what's the goal? God to inhabit us, not just you. God to inhabit. Why? Because when God inhabits his people, what happens to the powers that rule? They have no authority. You with me? See, division gains access. It causes the building to, the process of the kingdom of God to quit, to cease. This work right here, workmanship, right? You have to understand Paul finishes where he started. The love and mercy of God towards us should be shown toward each other. In other words, this unity that God's done to bring forth the habitation of the Spirit should be done through love and mercy and grace towards one another. Why? Because when we do that, we create a unity that makes God's house and his dwelling of place of the Spirit to be fully manifest, and he can abide instead of just visit. Because so many times our church services are God visiting. And like my mentor said, it's not right for a father to visit his own house. He's supposed to abide there. How does he do that? When you walk through those doors, not in your pettiness, 
but ready to release the line of the tribe of Judah in your loins because you've stood on the promises of God all week long. And now you're going to come in the unity of the body and release that roar through an entirety of a people that causes an upset in the region. And church starts to be what God wants it to be instead of you coming in and having somebody else fix your emotional issue so you can go right back into the crap that you came out of and drink on that stuff and come back next Sunday the same way you came in last Sunday. That's not the house of the Lord. It's necessary for a season, but it's not ultimate, and it's not the workmanship of Christ. You understand? Paul is now setting us up for chapter 3 where he prays for us, like Miss Judy was talking about, so that we can comprehend what we're supposed to get to be able to take in chapter 4. How you treat your wives and how you treat your husbands. Yikes. You can preach and scream and stomp and rant and rave all you want, but if you treat your wife like garbage, you empower the principality and your gospel is actually powerless. You just deceive yourself, which is the worst kind of deception because you don't need an enemy anymore. You're just a wind-up toy for the devil, and he lets your mind run loose upon yourself, and you do his work for him. That's not the plan. Please stand. I'm sorry I went long. I did try, but I had to get... I went through three last week, and I did, like, what, 17 this week? Give me some credit. All right, come on. We're getting somewhere. All right, thank you, Lord. Father, we bless your people. Let them walk in the counsel of the godly. Let them not sit in the seat of scorners, but they sit with you in heavenly places, that the unity of the body would become the heart cry of the church. That, Lord, that we would operate as people under one head. That, Lord, different, different gifts and callings would come forth and be broken off of the powers of unbelief in their life. That they would believe that they are part of a system of government that has come and saved the world. And it threatens the powers of darkness, that they're a part of something that's greater than themselves, all the way back to Abraham and to Moses and to David, that, Lord, your people would stand and that your house would be established. It would have the demonstration of the kingdom of God and the Father in the house. We thank you, Lord, for the, the wall being broken apart. There's no more division between your people except for what we allow. Forgive us if there is offense and division in our hearts toward anybody in this room. Release them, bless them, encourage them and cause us to see the beauty of the body of christ as being a whole instead of an individual piece we ask these things in jesus name amen